welcome to Genesis. Thankful that you guys are here. Um, Honestly, I just want to jump in, and I want to say something up front, encourage you to write it down, because my heart is, uh, I know what it's like sometimes to sit through messages, and and you start to kind of wander in your thoughts of like, wow, this is going on. Uh, Is this over soon? Uh, So I wanted you to catch right up front uh, what I really wanted you to remember uh, today. And please write this down. It's as simple as this, but profound. You were created for eternity. You were created for eternity. Now, I'm going to guess that uh, there's not one person here. Maybe this is new news to you, but I'm going to guess that most of you, this is news. Not new, but it's just news. You've heard this before. Maybe you've heard someone say this before, this idea that you were created for eternity. But I want to ask the question of, How is this news that you were created for eternity actually impacting or shaping how you live every single day? Because it's one of those things, this news here, if we not just believed it, but walked in it, uh, it would transform how we think about life and how we walk through life. Uh, Solomon in Ecclesiastes said this, God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He's planted eternity in the human heart. So what does it mean that God has planted eternity in your heart? What does that mean that God has planted eternity deep within our souls of of who we are? And I just wrote this response down. Uh, We are hardwired hardwired into each of us is a desire for something more, something greater than what we could ever discover in this life. If you've ever wondered, and I'm guessing all of you have, why why don't things satisfy us here? Like the things that we chase, the things that we pursue, even when we get them, you get that job, you get the money, you get the career, you get the girl, you get the guy, you get the marriage, you get everything. Why is it when you even get all of those things, it doesn't fully satisfy you like you thought it would? This is a question that C.S. Lewis uh, wrestled with a lot before coming to faith. And in his book, Mere Christianity, he just simply said this, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Uh, I mentioned this last Sunday, but uh, over the next uh, few months, we're going to be tracking with uh, the Apostle Paul and his journeys. Uh, um, he took three specific journeys. And one of the questions that has been a splinter in my mind, if you will, Uh, is what compelled this man to do what he did? Like, what drove the Apostle Paul to go on this incredible journey over the span of an entire decade? And here's just a very quick background. He took three missionary journeys. His first missionary journey was about three and a half years long, traveled to roughly about 15 different cities and towns, and he covered almost 1,600 miles. Okay, this is not like traveling first class on an airplane or a speedboat. This is largely traversing, walking, and obviously doing a lot of sailing as well. In his second missionary journey, covered almost, went to visit 18, roughly 18 different cities, covered 3,100 miles over the span of almost four years. In his third missionary journey, uh, covered, again, roughly about 15 cities, almost uh, 3,400 miles in travel uh, over the span of five years. So roughly over the span of a decade, this man was compelled to travel nearly 8,000 miles. What on earth would compel someone to do that? Like, what was it that said, you know what, I'm going to go and take myself and 
put myself in harm's way and travel these great distances. Why on earth would he do that? Well, I give you one answer. I think clearly it was uh, the message. He was so convinced that the message that God had given to him was so profound, so transformational, that he wanted other people to know what is known as the good news in the gospel. Uh, Paul would later write in his letter to the Corinthians, he said this in 2 Corinthians, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So clearly the message had just changed him. The message certainly was compelling him. But as I've really sat with the Apostle Paul and really diving into his missionary journeys, uh, I've come to, there's something else that was also compelling him. There's something that he knew, and it's something that we know. But what he knew, he oriented his entire life around. The message shaped the messenger and compelled him to take the message out. But there was something that he knew that he just oriented his entire life around. And it's something that I don't think we take what we know and we don't orient our entire existence around. And what Paul knew was just simply uh, this. This is not my home. This is not my home. Convinced, compelled by the message, absolutely. But I think what drove the Apostle Paul was he was also equally convinced that this was not his home. G.K. Chesterton is a teacher, philosopher, and also wrestled with a lot of these questions that uh, C.S. Lewis has wrestled with, a lot of questions we wrestle with. Uh, And he said this, the modern philosopher had told me again and again, I was in the right place, and I still felt depressed. But when I heard that I was in the wrong place, my soul sang for joy like a bird in spring. I knew now why I could feel homesick at home. Everyone kept telling him, no, you are where you are. This is your home. But it didn't feel right. It fell off until he finally came to the conclusion, this is not my home. And I can feel homesick while being at home. Paul was absolutely convinced that where he was, this was not his home. Again, I think many of us here today, we know this news, but if we're honest and say, or ask ourselves a question, is this news actually making a difference in how I live? Is this news actually changing anything about how I operate on a day-to-day basis? I think, again, if we're honest, most of us would say no. I know it, but it's not, it's not doing much in how I live. Uh, and so you ask the question, well, why is that? How is it we can know something, but it just doesn't make a difference, uh, generally speaking, how we live? And again, quoting C.S. Lewis uh, in his book, Mere Christianity, he just said this, we have not been trained... Uh, We have not been trained. Our whole education tends to fix our minds on this world. Meaning we have not been trained to think that this world is not our home. Rather, we have been trained to fix our mind, our affections, everything about who we are and what we see, what we hear uh, in the here and now. So this might be a challenging question for you, but say someone follows you around for a week. Uh, They observe you, they watch you, they pay attention to your conversations, uh, they are paying attention to the decisions that you make, the choices that you make, the things that you purchase. Uh, They just watch you. They just observe you for just one week. What would the conclusion be at the end of one week of where you live? And I don't mean geographically speaking, 
Um, I don't mean like, well, that person lives in Lexington. That person lives in Woburn or Stoneham or Burlington. What would be the conclusion after observing you just for one week as to where your home is? And again, I'm just being honest. If you followed me, Michael, are you really convinced that your home is actually in heaven, uh, that you were created for eternity? Uh, Again, as we're going to travel with the Apostle Paul over nearly 8,000 miles, we will see how the message shaped him, how the message absolutely shaped him. But we're also going to be absolutely inspired as to what the road to eternity is supposed to look like. Shaped by the message, but the thing that I think drove Paul is he was just convinced this is not my home. Because of that truth, I will live my life very differently. And so this morning, I really have one question that I wanted to answer as we look to uh, the story of Acts. And this is the question, how does God want me to live on the road to eternity? If I was created for eternity, if this is not my home, then how does God want me to live on the road to eternity? How does one live knowing that this is not our home? Uh, Jonathan Edwards um, said it well when he said, this life ought to be spent by us as only a journey towards heaven. So what would it look like for you to say, that's what my life is. My life is absolutely a journey to heaven. What would that, practically speaking, look like for you? Um, And I promise, this will be the last time I quote C.S. Lewis. Um, But again, a guy, he really wrestled with this. Uh, In Mere Christianity, he said it like this. Hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. I'm pretty confident you wouldn't disagree with me if I made the statement that the Apostle Paul made a tremendous difference on the world that he lived in. And he still is making a difference in the world that you and I live in. Why is that? And again, I just, I like how C.S. Lewis just said it. He made such an impact on this world that he lived in because he was thinking mostly of the world to come. He was convinced that this world was not his home. Uh, If you have a Bible, open up to Acts uh, chapter 13, and uh, I just want to read a story. Uh, And the story is uh, Saul, uh, and after today we will be allowed to call Saul Paul for the rest of the New Testament. So, uh, but Saul and Barnabas were uh, in the church in Antioch, and the church in Antioch said, uh, we are sending you to take the mission and the message out to, out to the world. Uh, and again, as we go through this story, my heart, in, as we walk through this story, is to answer the question, how does God want me to live my life on the road to eternity? Starting at uh, verse 4 in chapter 13. So Barnabas and Saul were sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went down to the seaport of Seleucia and then sailed out for the island of Cyprus. Just so you know, Cyprus was Barnabas' hometown. Verse 5, there in the town of Salmis, they went to the Jewish synagogues and preached the word of God. John Mark uh, went with them as their assistant. Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, he was also uh, the, uh, the close relative cousin of Barnabas. And when it says... 
uh, in verse uh, 5, he was their assistant. This doesn't mean like Mark was their bag boy. It wasn't like he was the roadie uh, for the rock stars known as Saul and Barnabas just carrying bags around. He was actively engaged and involved uh, in the preaching, teaching, and communicating to the people that they met uh, the amazing message that God had given them. Uh, So after they traveled, in verse 6, after they traveled from town to town across the entire island until finally they reached Paphos, where they met a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He had attached himself to the governor, uh, Sergius Paulus, who was an intelligent man. And the governor invited Barnabas and Saul to visit him, for he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elmas, the sorcerer, that was his uh, name in Greek, interfered, and he urged the governor to pay no attention to what Barnabas and Saul said. He was trying to keep the governor from believing. And here we go. Here's the big switch. Are you ready? Saul, also known as Paul. Paul was his Roman name. And so now that Paul is largely in Roman-occupied territory, preaching the message to the Gentile people, Gentiles meaning non-Jewish, it makes sense that he would go by his Roman name. So, Forever now, we will refer to Saul as Paul. Saul, also known as Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he looked at the sorcerer in the eye, and then he said, you son of the devil, full of every sort of deceit and fraud, an enemy of all that is good. So if you've ever wondered, can I call someone a son of the devil, and that's okay, you've got a verse. Will you never stop perverting the true ways of the Lord? Verse 11, watch now for the Lord has laid his hand of punishment upon you and you will be struck blind. You will not see the sunlight for some time. Instantly, mist and darkness came over the man's eyes and he began groping around begging for someone to take his hand and lead him. Verse 12, when the governor saw what had happened, he became a believer. He was astonished at the teaching about the Lord. Amazing story. Clearly, lots could be said about this story. But I want to answer again the question, if I've been created for eternity, this is not my home, how do I live as a traveler uh, on the road to eternity? What does that life look like? And I'm going to share with you three things coming right from this story from the text in Acts 13. Uh, Number one, encourage you to write these down. Number one is simply this. Be faithful on the road to eternity. Be faithful on the road to eternity. Let me just read again verse 4 and 5. Barnabas, Saul, sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went down to the seaport of Seleucia, then sailed for the island of Cyprus. There in the town of Salamis, they went to the Jewish synagogues, and they preached the word of God. And John Mark was with them as their assistant. These guys were just being faithful. The Spirit of God said, go, so they said, okay, we'll go. It's been affirmed, confirmed by this church in Antioch that came alongside them, but the Spirit of God said, go, and so these men were faithful to go and do what the Spirit of God had told them to do. Not only were they faithful to go, but they were faithful to preach the message that Jesus had had told them to preach. If you go back almost a year, uh, when we were in Acts chapter 1, Jesus said this in verse 8, in chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Nowhere in that verse 
uh, is there a mention or the promise of success? In that one verse, Jesus said, I'm going to be with you. You will have my power, and you're going to tell people about me everywhere you go, to the ends of the earth. But there is no mention in, in Acts chapter 1-8, and before these men set out on their journey, there was no promise that these guys were going to be successful in what they were called to do. They were faithful on the road to eternity. So again, going back to Acts 13, what is missing from the story of their visit to Cyprus? What's missing? Well, there, how about results? We have no idea what happened in Cyprus. And I, I have a feeling it's a good chance that Saul and Barnabas had no idea what happened in Cyprus either. Now, Obviously, if Luke, who's the author of Acts, wrote down every detail in the story of Acts, uh, we would be in Acts until you met Jesus personally face to face. So, but what I am saying is, it says they went to Cyprus, they preached the word of God faithfully, and then they moved on to the next town. They were faithful to go when, when the Spirit said go, and they were faithful with the message that Jesus had told them uh, to preach. And one of the things that I was reminded was this, God does not always allow us to see all that he is doing on the road to eternity. God does not always, not saying never, but God does not always allow us to see all that he is doing on the road to eternity. So let me ask this question, is your desire to be faithful to God and what God wants you to do based on your hope of the results that you think you're going to get. I know that if I say yes to God here and I do what God wants me to do, I'm pretty confident that God's going to do this for me. Or because I was faithful here, God is going to show up and is going to bless me or take care of me or provide for me. Or So is your commitment to be faithful to God completely based upon what you hope the results of success might actually look like? Or... Is your faithfulness just driven by nothing other than a desire, God, I just, regardless of results, I will be faithful to you. Whether this turns out great, whether this turns out bad, whether this turns out and I just don't know, I will be faithful to, to you regardless. Now, I used to conclude that if I'm being faithful to God, clearly God's going to allow me to see the fruit of my faithfulness. And when I didn't see the fruit of my faithfulness, and I was like, God, but I did everything you told me to do. I showed up, I, I said this, I did this, I loved here, I was generous here, and I go through this little laundry list of things that I think because I did that, I was faithful, God should reward me with success in all of those areas or at least allow me to see that it's working or it's helping or it's benefiting. And when I didn't see those things, the conclusion that I made is, well, clearly God's not doing anything, and it hindered future faithfulness. And so a question that, again, I would ask for you is, what happens to you when you don't see the fruit of your faithfulness? Do you get discouraged? Do you get depressed? Do you get disappointed? Do you get dissuaded from saying, you know what, it didn't work this time, so in the future, why would I be faithful? It's amazing how often when we don't see the fruit of our faithfulness immediately, how it sways us from being faithful in the future. And one of the things that God has taught me often the hard way is, uh, I don't always get to see what God is doing, but 
Just because I don't see what God is doing doesn't mean that God is not doing anything. So I'm not suggesting that it's sinful to want to see fruit, especially when you're talking about, God, I just want to see people's lives. This is making a difference. I want to see restoration. I want to see healing. There's nothing wrong in wanting to see those things. But again, what I'm saying is that when we don't see it, we don't need to make the conclusion or be discouraged or dissuaded from future faithfulness. Jesus, would you say that, that uh, he was fruitful? I think most of us would say, yes, Jesus was fruitful. But did Jesus see the fruitfulness of his ministry before he died? I don't know. I would have a hard time saying that he saw the fruitfulness of his ministry, him laying down his life, because you got someone who betrayed him, you got someone who denied him, you got someone who deserted him. And he, he dies a very obviously painful death on the cross. And one of the things that challenges me, inspires me about Jesus as an example, his faithfulness was not based upon results. His faithfulness was rooted in God's eternal plan. I'm so convinced, God, that your eternal plan is perfect, that even if I don't see it now, I will be faithful because you have created us for eternity. So even if I don't see it this week, this month, this year, this decade, you're working out an eternal plan in this person's life or in this situation. Jesus' faithfulness was not rooted in whether he saw fruit or he didn't. And on the road to eternity, uh, you'll be faithful. You'll be faithful. Sometimes God will allow you to see fruit. Sometimes he won't. One of the things that uh, was a really powerful experience for me and uh, for this individual was back in 1998, uh, I was living in Chicago. Or I'm sorry, yeah, 1998. Uh, I was living in Chicago, and I had the opportunity to meet a Sunday school teacher, uh, specifically the Sunday school teacher who prayed with me to receive Jesus. And it was amazing, uh, absolutely amazing. And uh, I was able to go to this woman and just say, hey, my name's Michael Davis. I'm sure you don't remember me, but if you would have seen me as a five-year-old, uh, they didn't have medication back in the 70s for people like me. I was hyper. I was crazy. It was... And this woman just loved me. <laughs> And she told me about Jesus. And I remember as a five-year-old praying with her. She said, do you want to know Jesus? I was like, yeah. And she prayed with me. As much as a five-year-old can understand anything, I prayed with her. And years later, I went back and I was like, listen, I just wanted to say thank you. You didn't see it then, but what you did for me, it's made an eternal impact, not just in my life, but in my wife. My three kids now know Jesus, and I promise you they will tell their kids about Jesus. What you did for me when I was five has had eternal ripples. She did not care for me as a five-year-old because she was like, well, I hope one day this kid turns out really good and, and gets a degree from The Ohio State University. I hope that's what happens. She said, no, I'm just going to love this little kid, and I will be faithful to do what God's called me to do. And if I never see this child again, I will be faithful to love him. I will trust the results to God. It was amazing seeing the light. I wish I, I, wish I could show you a picture. It just encouraged her heart so much to know uh, that what she did is making a huge difference in my life. We don't always get to see the fruit uh, of faithfulness. 
but when you don't see it, don't let it discourage you or depress you or disappoint you from future faithfulness. Question for you uh, before I move on would be this. What is God calling you to be faithful with today? Not tomorrow, not next, just today. What is God calling you to be faithful with today? Because on the road to eternity, it is a road marked by men and women who are convinced this is not my home, that I will be faithful today with what God wants me to do today. I, I love talking with people, uh, and they're like, Mike, I'm praying a lot about uh, serving. And I'm like, man, I'm pretty sure he's going to say yes to that. Uh, I'm pretty convinced that when you ask God, should I be serving and be a servant, I think he's going to say yes. Uh, I get that there's a time and place to kind of figure out maybe where I should be serving, uh, but if God is calling you to be faithful and just start being a servant where you are, whether it's here in this community, whether it's in your neighborhood, your school, at your place of employment, then be a servant. Why? Because you know that's what God wants you to do. Mike, I've been praying a lot about, like, I want to start giving, and I'm just not sure. I'm pretty sure he wants you to give. I'm pretty sure God wants you to be generous. Why? Well, because everything you have in your life is from him anyway, so be a good steward of everything he's given you, and be generous. Be generous to the neighbor. Be generous to your church. Be generous to your community. Be generous. Be faithful today with what you know God wants you to be faithful with. Number one, the road to eternity is marked by men and women who are being faithful. Uh, Number two would be this. Be prepared for opposition on the road to eternity. Be prepared for opposition on the road to eternity. Uh, As I've seen, I'm sure many of you would agree, the road to eternity is paved with opposition. So as you are being faithful with all that God calls you to, I can promise you, can promise you that there will be people placed in your path who will intentionally seek to derail you from accomplishing all that God would have for you. In this story, Acts chapter 13, verse 6, Afterward, they traveled from town to town across the entire island until they reached Paphos, uh, where they met a Jewish sorcerer, false prophet named Bar-Jesus. And by the way, Bar-Jesus just simply means uh, son of Jesus. He attached himself to the governor, uh, Sergius Paulus, who was an intelligent man. And the governor invited Barnabas and Saul to visit him, for he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elmas, which was the Greek name, interfered and urged the governor to pay no attention to what Barnabas and Saul said. He was trying to keep the governor from believing. Barnabas, Saul, they traveled roughly about 100 miles from where they were in Cyprus to the capital of Cyprus, which is Paphos. And upon arriving, they meet a Jewish magician, a sorcerer. And we know from Paul's response that he was an evil magician, sorcerer. Um, his name, Bar-Jesus, means son of Jesus. I couldn't think of what a good modern-day example would be. So if you've seen The Lord of the Rings, uh, this would be a little bit like, think of uh, Grima Wormtongue, who was the chief advisor to King Theoden. All right? So that's the best visual I could give you of what a Bar-Jesus would look like who was coming alongside the governor to manipulate him and keep him from doing anything that would hinder uh, Bar-Jesus experiencing Uh, whatever he happened to to want. Uh, Again, maybe not the perfect example, uh, but this is who this man was, attached himself to the governor. Now, the question is, 
Why is Bar-Jesus so opposed to the governor hearing what Barnabas and Saul had to say? Why does he care? What, what's his deal? What's his problem? Why would he want to interfere with that? Well, we know that the governor is a very intelligent man. And we know that if the governor hears the gospel of God's grace and God's good news of relationship, and we know he's an intelligent man, then why do we need Bar-Jesus? He doesn't need Bar-Jesus anymore. And Bar-Jesus knows this. He's fearful if that there is a change. The thing that will change is he will no longer be influencing who the governor is. So he does whatever he possibly can to interfere with what's happening. Now, let me ask you some questions here. Can you relate in this story with the governor? And you might be here today, and you're the governor. You haven't made any decisions about Jesus. You haven't made any decisions about God. You're in a place in a season of just asking questions, trying to figure out, what does all of this mean? How do I relate and connect with God? And where does Jesus fit in? And can you relate with the governor in that every time you take a step forward, to learn more, to discover, you're met with just opposition, and you can't articulate it, you can't explain it, but something happens every time you take a step forward to learn more, to discover more, to ask questions. Man, it's just problem after problem after problem in your life, and weeks and months go by, and you forgot completely that you're even wondering about God. Can you relate with that? Can you relate with Bar-Jesus? And, or I'm sorry, can you relate with Saul and Barnabas? You're interested in telling a friend, a spouse, a son, a daughter, a neighbor, a coworker, a fellow student about Jesus. And every time you take a step forward and you're having a great conversation, a bar Jesus happens. Something interferes with the conversation going forward. I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations and I'm like, man, Lord, this is amazing. This is going so well. They're asking such thoughtful, insightful questions. And then someone sits down in the middle of the conversation and totally takes the conversation in a totally different direction. And I'm like, son of devil, get out of this conversation. I haven't said that, but I got a verse now. But can you relate with that? You're the governor trying to make steps in understanding Jesus, but you're met with opposition. You're Saul, you're Barnabas, trying to share who Jesus is with family, with friends. And when you do that, you're met with opposition. Well, my question is, why? Why is this? What is it that every time we want to make progress towards learning about God or telling others about God, there's a bar Jesus thrown in our path? And I wrote it down like this. The road to eternity is not so much a physical road, but a spiritual road that is marked by spiritual battles. This road to eternity is not so much a physical road, but a spiritual road. And on this spiritual road, it is marked with spiritual battles. I like how Paul said it in Ephesians chapter 6. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. What does that mean? It means we are spiritual people, we live in a spiritual world, and there is spiritual opposition that will come up against you when you try to love God, worship God, serve God, when you try to love people, serve people, be generous, kind, caring. There will be opposition. There will be a bar Jesus as it were. Why? Because there is a real spiritual battle taking place. And some of you, that might just freak you out. Some of you, that might discourage you. 
But to me, I am encouraged to know that the battle that I live in, the same battle that you live in, the battle's already been won. I like how Thomas Watson, who was a Puritan pastor, uh, in his a book on the Lord's Prayer, when he was really wrestling with, uh, protect us from the evil one, and wrestling with what does that mean? And he said this, soon the battle will be over. It will not be long now before the day will come when Satan will no longer trouble us. There will be no more domination, temptation, accusation, or confrontation. Our warfare will be over, and our commander, Jesus Christ, will call us away from the battlefield to receive the victor's crown. It doesn't matter how thick the battle is, and I'm sure you could share a personal story and experience of how heavy the battle has been in your life. And you might be in a season and a place right now where you can't even see the end of it. And I just want you to know the battle has already been won. The road to eternity will be marked. It will be hard. It will be challenging. But Jesus has won. So my hope is not on what I can see in the battle that's in front of me. My hope is on the commander named Jesus who has won this battle. I wanted to finish, again, my third point in this story of how do we live lives uh, on the road to eternity. Well, what do you do when a bar Jesus shows up? What do you do when the spiritual battle is not just a reality, but it is your reality? And here's my third point uh, in this story of what we learn. Be a fighter and a lover on the road to eternity. I'm being a little bit tongue-in-cheek here. I think the phrase is, uh, I'm a lover, not a fighter, or I'm a fighter, not whatever it is. Uh, I wanted to encourage you, you're supposed to be both on the road to eternity. You will be one who knows how to fight well, and you will be one who knows how to love well. Um, Let me give you an example or an illustration. If you're a dad, okay, so uh, even if you're not a dad, guys, you can imagine this. If there was someone who was trying to peddle heroin to your kid, I do not think that you would approach that individual by saying, hey, I'd like to have a discussion about like the merits and demerits of heroin use, and you know, I've got some ideas on why I don't think this is a good idea. I'm more than willing to listen to your ideas on why you think it's a good idea. Uh, I think in that moment, if there was someone who was peddling that crap to your kids as their father, you would stand up and do whatever you had to do to make sure that would not happen. A papa bear would come out of you, and you know you would do that. If you're a mom, and you don't need to be a mom to understand this, if there was uh, someone who drove up in your neighborhood in a funny-looking car and started passing out candy to your kids, I don't think you would casually walk across your lawn and say, hey, listen, we haven't had dinner yet, so can you come back in a few hours and... um, Then the kids can have some candy. I don't think you would enter into a conversation that said, you know what, I've been trying to teach my kids about candy and sugar and hyperactivity. It's not good for their teeth. I don't think you'd do that. If you were a mom, you know what you'd do. You know what you would do. So again, and by the way, I know that for some of you, those are real examples. And for some of those, even if they're not real to you, you know in that situation what you would do. Why is it in situations like that, we know that we would fight? We would do whatever we had to do to protect the ones that we loved. One of the commentaries that I was reading throughout the week, he's a pastor, author, theologian, said this, if such drastic action is taken for temporal problems, how about a problem 
that has dire consequences for all eternity. One who loves humanity will not calmly stand by when he or she sees the eternal salvation of a person who a person for who Christ has died jeopardized through the deception of a false teacher. Now, I think you might have a little bit better understanding of what Paul did. See, Paul wasn't just a name caller. You have a better understanding of the deep love that he had for humanity. And in this moment, expressed towards the governor. Why? Because when he looked at that man, he said, I see God's eternal created you for eternity. And he wanted that man so desperately to know that he was willing to fight for that man's soul. And so when, again, you read in Acts 13, Saul, known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he looked the sorcerer in the eye, and he said, you son of the devil, full of every sort of deceit and fraud and enemy of all that is good. I don't want you to think that uh, Paul pulled the bar Jesus aside and was like, hey, man, we're trying really hard to reach this guy. Could you back off a little bit? Uh, you know, I don't think there was niceties exchanged here. I think he looked at this man in the eye and he said, you are a son of the devil. You are a fake. You are a fraud. There is nothing but evil in you. So is it okay to do that? <laughs> is it okay to approach people like that? kidded before, we've got a verse. But what I don't want you to miss is Paul was filled with the Spirit of God, and he was led by the Spirit of God. This wasn't just name-calling. He wasn't someone who hurt his feelings and he just wanted to get back at. He was filled with the Spirit of God in this moment. And by the way, I'm pretty confident he had a very good example of someone who came before him in Jesus. When the Pharisees and teachers and spiritual leaders of the day were leading people astray, this is what Jesus said in John chapter 8. For you are children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things that he does. On the road to eternity, you're going to have to be willing to fight, and you're going to have to be willing to love. In this moment, Paul loved this man, Bar-Jesus. And you might think that is a crazy expression of love, calling someone the devil, but what I see in this man, uh, Bar-Jesus, a man who is leading people astray, a man who is blocking this governor from coming to even hear the message, Paul loved him enough to say, you're a fraud, and I see through it. The Spirit of God has given me eyes on you to see who you are and where you are. And he loved that man enough to tell him that message. And not only that, he prays and says, God, allow this man to taste in a physical way, what he has been doing to people. He has been spiritually blinding people from who you are, so allow him to taste a physical blindness of what it's like to, to walk around in the darkness. And what does God do? Okay. And blindness comes on bar Jesus. So if you have someone like this in your life, I'm not saying you run home from church today and be like, well, the pastor said I could call you son of devil, so... You're a devil. I'm not saying that. But I am saying, on the road to eternity, when there are people who are directly opposing the path of God, the way of God, the people of God, be one who would love that person enough to say, I see through it, and you're a fraud. And I love you enough to tell you that. Now, I don't know what happened to Bar-Jesus. This is the end of him. 
We don't know if he ever repented when he got his sight back. But I have a feeling it got his attention. So Paul uh, was a man who loved Bar-Jesus enough to do what he did, but he also he fought for the governor. Do you have anyone in your life that you would fight for their, their soul like that? See, Paul was compelled, convinced by the message, but I think he was so compelled and convinced that this was not his home. And he had a picture of the home that God was preparing for the governor. And he fought for him so that nothing would get in the way of that man experiencing what God wanted him to experience. Joseph, uh, Joe Stoll, uh, who was actually a, a president at uh, one of the seminaries I went to, said this, our perception in a book called Eternity, our perception of people changes from their being commodities to being eternal creatures in need of the redemptive touch of God's grace when we view them through the hearts, through hearts hooked on eternity. We want them to join our pilgrimage and find their way to our eternal home. I think in that moment, Paul's heart was so hooked on eternity. And he looked at the governor. And he said, I'll fight for you. I will do whatever it takes so that your soul can have its home in heaven like where his was. So do you have someone that you are doing that for? It could be a spouse. It could be a friend, a neighbor, a son, a daughter. Do you have someone that you're saying, your soul matters that much to me? And it matters that much to me because I know it matters to God. Do you have someone? Do you have a bar Jesus? And it, honestly, it might not be a person, but it just might be a situation that you would be loving enough to say, enough's enough. And led by the Spirit of God with your eyes fixed on what God would have you do. Would you love someone enough to tell them enough's enough? I see you, and I see through this. The road to eternity is marked by men and women who would be faithful. The road to eternity is marked by men and women who are just prepared. They're prepared for the reality of spiritual battle. And the road to eternity is marked with men and women who are willing to both fight and love. And that last one, I think, sometimes in the church... uh, there's a whole lot of love, but there's not much fight. And sometimes there's just way too much fight and it's, there's no love. And I see what I learned from Paul is he did both. He fought well and he loved well because he was convinced of where he was going.